This morning we come to Acts chapter 5 and we're going to look at verse 12 to 42. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly lengthy passage, um, but there's so much in here for us to explore together. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Fear and Faith in Making Jesus Known. Fear and Faith in Making Jesus Known. Now, I wonder how many of us here enjoy conflict and relish the opportunity to say something to someone that's going to upset them and make them angry with us. Well, looking out on all of your friendly faces, I, I can't believe that anybody would enjoy doing that. Hopefully none of us relishes saying things that might offend someone. A few of us might be more naturally resilient when it comes to saying something to someone that really needs to be said, even though they might not like it. They might get upset with us for saying it, but it needs to be said. But the truth is that most of us have a natural instinct to shy away from saying things that aren't easy, and especially from saying things to other people that we know might offend them. And in many areas of life, conversations like that can be largely avoided. We can choose not to talk about politics with a work colleague. We can choose not to complain to the chef about our steak being a little bit overdone. We can choose not to say what we're thinking about a friend's unusual uh, hat that they're wearing today. We can choose not to mention the bad grammar or bad spelling in a family member's message that they've sent to us. We can often find ways to keep the peace by avoiding things, saying things that might upset people. But sometimes situations do arise when the only loving thing to do is to speak up and share the truth with someone, even if it risks upsetting them. Sometimes we have to stand up and say what is right and good and true for the sake of another person, even when they might not like it. And nowhere is this more true, of course, than when it comes to speaking about Jesus. Because as we know, every single man, woman and child in this world needs to hear about Jesus. The Bible is clear. Without Jesus, every single human being is cut off from God enslaved to things that are not God and under God's just judgment for their sins. And perhaps me just saying that so definitively this morning, maybe that offends you. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. You think, that's a bit harsh. But it's the truth, and it is utterly loving to say it. Everyone is in the most terrible and eternal danger, and the only only the message of the good news of Jesus can rescue them from that danger. So telling people about Jesus very much falls into that category of saying loving things that need to be said. No matter what the reaction of the person, for the sake of love, that is a message we need to share. And that, if you're anything like me, is equally compelling and terrifying. A reminder like that can move our hearts with intense compassion and urgency, but a reminder like that can also fill our hearts with fear and trepidation and an overwhelming sense of, I just can't do that. I can't bring myself to say that. It can leave us, frankly, paralyzed with fear. Maybe the first thing that is best said this morning is that fear is not something unique to you to any of us, when it comes to telling other people about Jesus, that fear lurks powerfully within all of us. And the apostles were no different. 
In fact, we know they weren't any different because not long before the events of our passage today, they had all fled in fear when they saw the Roman guards coming to arrest Jesus. Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times over, and he was even afraid of what a little servant girl might do to him if she found out he was a follower of Christ. And that fear in the apostles was certainly not eradicated entirely from their hearts just because of then what happened at Pentecost when the Spirit came. No, they still wrestled with great fear at times when it came to making a stand and speaking for Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. Paul had to seriously rebuke Peter and our beloved Barnabas, who we were all encouraged by last week. Paul had to rebuke Peter and Barnabas for their fear of man. And he records that in Galatians 2. And the great apostle Paul himself told the Corinthians that he himself was gripped by fear when he was trying to share the gospel in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The Apostle Paul was known to tremble. So much so that the Lord had to appear to Paul one night in a vision and say to him about Corinth, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. So imagine, and maybe we can, imagine being so gripped by fear that the Lord has to appear to you in a vision to reassure you. Maybe we can think of occasions when that would have really helped us because we've been gripped by fear about speaking about Jesus. The apostles wrestled at times with great fear in telling people about Jesus, and they were the apostles. None of us here this morning are apostles. It's no wonder then that we still wrestle with fear. I remember a well-known and very gifted British evangelist saying a little while back that for all of the years, the decades that he had worked as an evangelist, daily finding opportunities to tell people about Jesus, he still had to battle with fear every single time a new opportunity came up, a sort of a little window of opportunity opened. And he knew, I I could say something here that would point them to Christ, but every time he said, still I wrestle with fear, that fear never completely goes away. And he was an evangelist. Not many of us are evangelists, but still we battle the same fears. So the question I want to ask and answer this morning is this. How did the apostles battle their fears about opposition, rejection, persecution, even the threat of death? How did they battle those fears and keep lovingly and boldly telling people at every opportunity about Jesus? Now, one obvious answer I know that will come to mind is, well, they had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them boldness and courage, and certainly he did, and certainly he promises to do the same for us. But even the Holy Spirit uses means. He doesn't bypass our hearts and minds. He doesn't simply disconnect the fear signals in our brains so that we no longer feel any fear. No, the Holy Spirit uses means and methods. He helps us fight fear with faith. He energizes our faith and he gives us confidence in the promises of God. That's how the Holy Spirit answers our prayer for more boldness in making Jesus known. He helps us to believe glorious and mighty, fear-extinguishing truths about God and the gospel. There's a lot going on in our passage this morning. We can't possibly look at all of it, all of it but I want to focus in on three of those 
fear-quenching, faith-building truths that I believe are here in this passage to embolden our witness. The first of those fear-quenching truths is that the gospel is mighty to save. The second, that our commission is from God. And the third, that God's plans cannot be thwarted. These are truths for us to put our faith in and ask that the Holy Spirit would give us confidence through. First of all, the gospel is mighty to save, verses 12 to 16. Uh, And if you have a Bible, please do keep it open as we work our way through this. Acts 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. First thing to notice here is something we saw a few weeks ago in Acts 4, and that is that proclamation and persecution usually go hand in hand. They frequently go together, because wherever the gospel message is shared, some people lean in and other people lean out and they pull away. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So these two things are happening simultaneously. Some people leaning back and out. No, I don't want nothing to do with this. I don't like this. And others leaning in and putting their trust in Christ and being saved. Acts shows us again and again this is normal. This is to be expected. The gospel of Jesus divides. It divides opinions It divides families, it divides people in their response to those who are talking about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, We as Christians are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. So wherever we spread the aroma of Christ... Some people will want to know more, while others will want to run for the hills or even set out to stop us. And I'm sure this morning that if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for even a little little while, you have experienced some of that opposition yourself. Maybe certain people seem to steer clear of you now and give you a wide berth once they hear you're a Christian, like there's something not quite right about you, something they can't quite work out about you and they, they don't want to be around you. Maybe they've never said anything especially critical, but they're wary of you because of the things you believe. Perhaps it's a family member that's suspicious of you. They love you, they know you, they love you, they think you're quite nice, but still they're suspicious of you being a Christian. They can't fathom why you're a Christian, and they certainly don't want you to talk about that with them. Don't raise that subject with me, I don't want to hear it. Perhaps some people you've tried to tell about Jesus have misjudged you. They have labeled you as mad or unloving or bigoted or judgmental. None of those things being true. Perhaps others have been even more actively opposed to you. Maybe they have tangibly, they've been tangibly hostile when they hear that you go to church or when you share something of what you believe. Perhaps they complain about you to other people. Perhaps they actively stand in the way of you progressing at work. Perhaps they're always angling for an argument with you whenever you sit down for lunch with them. 
The problem is really not that these things happen. The problem is we're often surprised that they happen. And it's when we turn again to the book of Acts, we realize it shouldn't surprise us. The gospel that is mighty to save also frequently offends. Now, all of this is not to say we should ever be intentionally and sinfully rude or offensive or arrogant in our manner towards others. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 20 that it's no credit to us if we suffer for doing wrong. But most of us, as I said at the start, actually have a very natural instinct to run away from difficult encounters with people. We, we don't want to offend people. We want people to like us. We want to build bridges and take the edge off difficult conversations. The last thing most of us want to do is offend. And yet here's the one thing that we can't do and we mustn't do. If we want to love people, we can't stop sharing the only message that can save people. This glorious, life-changing, sin-canceling, eternity-transforming gospel of Jesus. Though it might offend some people, there is nothing else in all the world that has the power to save them and others and completely transform their lives forever. We believe that, don't we? Nothing like this gospel. Just look at what the gospel's doing then in these opening verses this morning. Luke tells us here about the sick being healed and the demon oppressed set free. Both of those things can still happen today, but they're also windows into the greater and more universal spiritual freedoms that the gospel brings. The gospel brings people back to God. It heals our wounds and covers our iniquities. It restores our relationship with the one that we were made to know and enjoy and worship. It, according to verse 14, I love this phrase, it adds people to the Lord. It brings people into the Lord's family and unites them to the Lord himself. It gives help to the, ho- the helpless and hope to the hopeless. It washes away the stain of our sin. It takes away the, guilt, the weight of guilt and shame that sits so heavily on people's shoulders that they may not know it. It mends our brokenness. It liberates us from bondage to all manner of addictions and soul-destroying things. It gives us a refuge and shelter from the storms of life. It redeems our life from the pit. And, and the psalm says it crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. It promises an eternal home and everlasting joy with God forever. And that's just scratching the surface of all of the blessings the gospel brings. Acts, Acts 5 is just a little window into some of those blessings. But only the gospel can do those things. Only the gospel can do what we see here happening in verses 12 to 16 and all throughout the pages of Acts as well. Only the gospel, the only gateway to all of this is a message that has to be spoken and shared. The gospel's not an item we can buy for someone. It's not a quest that we can send them on. It's not a lifestyle that we could simply model for them. It is a message that needs to be spoken and shared. A message that, though it will inevitably offend some, it will bring others to the greatest liberty that they will ever find in this life. The greatest freedom and all of the riches of eternal life in Jesus. That's what the disciples realized for themselves much earlier on as they were following Jesus. You remember that encounter back in John 6? Uh, Jesus, um, obviously speaking about himself as he did, so in a sense 
very much preaching the same gospel we now preach, he often offended people. The one who loved people more than anyone else in all of the world, the one whose heart was more filled with compassion and mercy towards everybody that he looked upon, he still offended people because of the truth that he shared with them. And back in John 6, there was a time when he offended a lot of people, a lot of his followers. So much so that John 6 verse 66 says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else shall we go, asked Peter. You alone have the words of eternal life. There is nothing else in all of the world that offers that to people. But the only way to avoid offending some people is to avoid sharing those words of eternal life with anyone. If we don't share it with anyone, then perhaps we won't offend anyone or risk upsetting anyone or rouse the anger and contempt of anyone. But at the same time, nobody will be saved. And so conversions and criticisms, they go together. Redemption and rejection, they go together. Salvation and cynicism, they go together. They are simply a package deal for those who want to tell others about Jesus. And the apostles knew this and they experienced it, but still they kept on witnessing because they knew that that same gospel that offends is also mighty to save. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that is the first place that the Spirit undoubtedly gave the apostles and the early church a faith-filled confidence and boldness. And where he, I believe, wants to give us the same faith-filled confidence today, the gospel is mighty to save. The second place our passage gives us confidence this morning is then in reminding us that our commission is from God. Uh, We're going to look at verses 17 to 32 here. Our commission is from God. We have a commission to make Jesus known. And that commission is not something we've come up with ourselves. It's not something from man. It is from God. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now what I think is perhaps most remarkable here is not even the, uh, the angelic uh, rescue from the prison, but what the apostles do as soon as they're set free. Because think about it, I don't know about you, but if I had just been arrested for sharing the gospel... And then freed by an angel, I think all things considered, I would call it a night. I would count my blessings. I would lay low for a few days. I I might even reassess my commitment or at least my strategy in telling people about Jesus. But the apostles, they're strengthened by the angel's words to them. 
It's a reminder to them that not only do they have a life-giving message to share, he says, speak to the people all the words of this life. And isn't that a cool um, sort of uh, little uh, label for the gospel? It's the message of this life. The message that gives life. So they're reminded of that. It's a life-giving message. But also, they're reminded that their commission to speak is directly from God. It's just come to them again through an angel of the Lord. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's a bit like one of those moments in a movie where the initial camera angle, it it shows someone and they appear to be standing alone. Maybe they're on a crest of a hill. It's a low camera angle. They appear to be standing alone and and, and before them is this vast army of enemies that that they're meant to be going into battle against. And then suddenly the camera pans out. Maybe there's some inspiring music in the background as well. And it gives you a completely new perspective. Suddenly you see there's a far mightier force standing right there behind that person on their side to support them as they go into battle. Just like the account in 2 Kings chapter 6 when a great Syrian army descend on the city of Dothan to capture the prophet Elisha. And Elisha's very calm and cool about it, but Elisha's servant is terrified at the sight of this mighty force coming particularly to take his, his master Elisha away. 2 Kings 6, verse 15, and the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. When our eyes are open to see that God is on our side and that he is with us and that he is sending us, our perspective changes entirely. And so at first glance, going back to the temple to speak more about Jesus, the apostles look like they are mice trying to stand up against lions. And maybe they felt like that a bit as well. That The Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, they appear to have all of the power power to charge them and prosecute them, flog them, imprison them, and even kill them, the apostles look like deer standing in the headlights of a juggernaut. Until that is, we're reminded of who it is that sent them there. Then your whole perspective changes. They're there on God's authority, doing what God has commissioned them to do, being Christ's witnesses. And then we have to ask now, who are the mice trying to stand up to a lion? Now, who are the, who's the deer caught in the headlights of a juggernaut? It's not those speaking for God. It's surely those trying to oppose God. And then what happens next here, I, I think surely has to have the, it's meant to have the air of comedy about it. Because it really is laughable, farcical for any human power to think they can stand in the way of God. Verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Just picture this uh, self-important, 
group of people, lots of pomp and ceremony and ritual, I reckon, in, in gathering the whole Senate together like this. this is a, maybe they woke up that morning, this is an exciting day for us. We've got them in the prison cell. We'll gather us all together, put on all our special robes. We're going to show them who's boss. So robes pressed and ironed, chests puffed out with self-importance, and a sense of being the ones who are fully in control and in charge and about to stop all of this Jesus talk. And they say, bring us the prisoners. We're, we're ready to pass judgment. Only for the prison officers to arrive, presumably, I don't know whether with more fear or embarrassment or maybe both, and announce that the prison is still locked, but there's no one inside. These Christians, we, we, we left them there, but they're not there. We're sure we put them there. We saw them last night through the window, through the bars. We go there this morning. They're not there. They're gone. And that news alone seems to knock a little of the wind out of their sails. Verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Perhaps one or two of them were already now starting to think to themselves, hang on, I, I thought we were the ones in charge. I thought we were in the driving seat. Where's all this going? Where's this heading? But then things get worse still for them. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. So not only have they not been able to keep the apostles under lock and key, they've not even been able to stop them telling more people about Jesus. And in the very same place that they were doing it the day before as well. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now who's afraid? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him Peter and the other apostles they know who they must obey they know who is in charge here they know who's commissioned them to speak about Jesus and so no amount of threats or punishment is going to stop them now there's much more that could be said here about when when as Christians we should and shouldn't obey human leaders and governments and rulers and institutions, actually the majority of the time we should. We should submit and obey. Romans 13 verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So in so much of life, we should submit to the authorities that God has placed over us in the fallen world around us. But the key phrase here in, in 1 Peter 2 is, for the Lord's sake. Christians of all people should have the greatest respect for human authorities and be the quickest to obey whenever possible, but not when they ask us to sin. Not when they ask us to do something that is contrary to God's will, especially not when they have told us not to speak about Jesus. And we live in a world right now that 
increasingly wants to tell us we can't speak about Jesus. We certainly can't say true things about Jesus. We can maybe say some made-up things, but not true things, not some of those things that are both most loving and at times offensive to people. The world often now tells us we can't speak for Jesus, but Jesus has commissioned us to be his witnesses. He has given us a great commission to make him known, and we must, like the apostles, choose to, we must choose to obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Now, certainly this morning, let me reassure you, none of us are apostles. Only a few of us might be gifted as evangelists. Only some of us will have gifts that perhaps lend themselves to standing up in front of a group of people to tell them about Jesus. But we are all called in our own way to be his witnesses in everyday life and conversation. Every Christian has been divinely appointed and divinely commissioned. Which doesn't mean we won't meet with all manner of challenges and opposition. But it does mean that no matter who challenges our right to speak openly about Jesus, no matter how bad certain people might try to make us feel for sharing our faith, for saying things like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, for making us feel bad for saying he's the only way to God, no matter how much people might try to shut us down for wanting to point lost men and women to him, it doesn't change the truth and the power of our message or the rightness of our lovingly, graciously, mercifully sharing it. None of that changes the fact that we have been commissioned as witnesses by the king himself. Nor, if you remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, nor that he has promised to be with us always to the end of the age as we each play our part, as we work together to make disciples of all nations. We can't make ourselves bold. I suspect most of us have worked that out. We have found that to be our experience. We cannot make ourselves bold, but the Holy Spirit can give us boldness. And one of the ways he gives us faith and boldness is by reminding us that we never speak on our own authority when we're speaking about Jesus. We are speaking on the authority of God himself. Christ himself has commissioned us. And thirdly and finally, briefly this morning, our passage strengthens our faith for telling people about Jesus by reminding us that God's plans cannot be thwarted. God's plans cannot be thwarted. Verses 33 to 42. Verse 33, when they heard this, when the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and all of them, their, their, their council, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And you might recognize this name, by the way. This, uh, he, he was... Well, I guess, yeah, already by this point, um, a teacher of Paul or Saul um, in, in Saul's pre-Christian days. Um, so here's the guy that trained Saul to be a, a kind of a violent opposer of the Christians. Uh, but here he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined them. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, 
and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, here's a question. How did the apostles endure such a vicious beating? Uh, their backs and even perhaps their fronts, cruelly lacerated and bleeding. How did they endure that and then return home rejoicing? How did all the other believers in the church, seeing what had been done to their leaders, how did they still have the faith and the courage to turn up to church on the following Sunday and meet together? How did they have the courage to be seen publicly sitting under the teaching of these apostles who'd been charged and beaten by the authorities? Well, verse, 30, uh, verse 41 tells us, firstly, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The apostles and the church, they counted it an honor to suffer for Jesus, to suffer for the gospel, an honor to suffer for the Savior who had already suffered and died for them. They were not ashamed to be counted with their king. They were not ashamed for other people to know that they were Christians. And secondly... The growing confidence of the early church was surely also in the very thing that Gamaliel, the Pharisee, had observed. Verse 39, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. The apostles and the early church, they knew that God's plans could not be thwarted. They knew that the witness of his church could not be stopped. It would not be ended. Jesus had promised they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so they knew they would be, they knew that the gospel would spread, that they would be witnesses. It, and they'd seen it already spreading mightily throughout Jerusalem. But they knew with a confidence that many more thousands and ten thousands and maybe even millions of people would ultimately respond in saving faith as it spread further still to the ends of the earth, that the Lord would keep adding to their number day by day until, as it says in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or as the Apostle John would one day see in a vision of the future, Revelation 7 verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The early church's faithful witnessing, it was sustained by promises like these. And we can stand on these very same promises. We can stand on them too. But think as well about the additional vantage point that we have that we can look back now on 2,000 years of church history as well. For the first Christians, they knew the gospel would spread. 
They were only just seeing the beginnings of that promise's fulfillment. It was still at stage one. They were seeing, they were encouraged. It's going around Jerusalem, people being saved, but we're still at stage one. We're still just in Jerusalem. And now the apostles have been beaten for the first time for their faith. That could have been disheartening. But still they had eyes of faith to see the unstoppable purposes of God. They were still rejoicing and proclaiming. But now, 2,000 years later, that very same message that was handed by Jesus to just a small group of men and women 10 days before Pentecost, that has spread to become the largest religion in the world. There are well over 2 billion people claiming to be Christians throughout the world. Now, of course, not many of them have perhaps just popped it on a census or they've just attended a church. Not all genuine believers, but still that is incredible growth. Gamaliel was right whether he meant to be or not. If this plan and message was simply of men, if it simply relied on the strength and courage of men and women, it would have failed long, long ago. But if it is of God, then nothing and no one can stop it and overthrow it. And throughout 2,000 years of countless rulers and dictators and politicians and philosophers who've vehemently opposed it, Nothing has been able to stop the gospel spread. And in fact, many times, if you read church history, read what's going on about in, around the world right now, it has often been through the world's opposition to the gospel that the message has spread wider and further and faster than ever before. And it is this very same gospel that has reached us and saved us and which now calls us together as a church to go on looking to the Holy Spirit to give us faith, to overcome our fears, to give us boldness, to continue to make Jesus known. And that is great reason for praying because we feel so weak in ourselves. We need the Spirit's help. Great reason for praying, but it's also great reason for rejoicing. So let's do those two things now. First of all, let's pray. Then we're going to stand and we're going to rejoice as we sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel has come to us. Lord, that you place people in every one of our lives to share the good news of Jesus with us. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness, their courage, their love for us. We, we thank you that for commissioning them as your witnesses to bring the gospel to us, to now in turn commission us to pass on that, that same life-giving message. Lord, none of us here this morning are apostles. Not many of us are evangelists or teachers. But please, we pray, help each and every one of us in the unique spheres of daily life and relationships you've placed us into. Please help us to make Jesus known in the way that we love and live and speak. Fill us afresh, we pray, with your spirit. Give us boldness as we place our faith, not in ourselves, but in you and in the truths that you have spoken to us today. And we pray, Lord, oh, please, Father, save people through our humble, faithful witness and glorify your name through us, we pray. Amen.